What I want to do with this last talk is uh, talk about womanhood in Christ. Last night, uh, I told the men, it is good to be a man. Today, I want to tell you, ladies, it's good to be a woman. And let me start off by telling you just how good it is. Uh, in Proverbs 31, uh, that's probably a chapter you're familiar with, Proverbs 31, we have almost a whole chapter given to describing the ideal wife and mother, a chapter celebrating the fulfillment of womanhood, the, uh, the ideal woman uh, there is celebrated. In Proverbs 31, we're told of this woman, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This is a woman who is to be praised. Her husband, her children are to glorify her. They're to praise her. Now, think about this. What, was the, what, what are the first human words recorded in Scripture? The first human words recorded in Scripture. It's Adam, in Genesis 2, when he meets his wife for the first time, and he sings over her a song of praise. This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Proverbs 31 says, the woman who fears God is greatly to be praised. That traces all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 when Adam praised his wife. The first recorded words in scripture are of a man not praising God, but praising woman. How about that? Before human lips in scripture praise God, there's a human voice praising woman. Adam's first recorded words are not of him praising his creator, but the last maid of God's creatures, the woman. Uh, those first human words spoken in scripture are words of praise directed towards a woman. If God made you a man, it's good to be a man. And so go be the best man you can be. If God made you a woman, it's good to be a woman. And so go be the best woman you can be. Last night, we took a look at what that means for men. Now we're going to look at what it means for women. Last night, uh, I pointed out how manhood is under attack in our culture, and it's a very direct attack. There's nothing subtle about it. Uh, it's just a, an all-out frontal assault on masculinity. Womanhood is under attack as well in our culture, but it's a different kind of attack. It's not a direct attack. Uh, it's an indirect attack. It's a much more subtle attack. Now, I cannot speak to womanhood the same way I can speak to manhood because I'm a man and not a woman. And uh, interestingly, in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, uh, Paul says that older women should teach the younger women how to be women. That is, how to love their husbands and children and do other womanly things that are listed there. I'm not going to try to take the place of those older women. And hopefully you have older women in your life, older women in your church, uh, perhaps starting with your own mother, who can teach you about these things, who can teach you womanhood. But there are some truths in Scripture, I would say big picture truths about womanhood, that I certainly do believe I can point out to you uh, as a man and as a pastor. But there are a few qualifications here before we, before we dig into this. I realize that not everyone comes from the kind of home uh, that I'll be describing. I'll be doing the kind of thing Proverbs 31 does and talking about uh, what's ideal. And I realize not everybody grows up in that kind of home. Not all of you have grown up in that kind of home. Some of you come from very difficult home situations or broken home situations. Uh, if that's your case, know that God is merciful. God can work even through broken families 
uh, to show you his grace, to show you his mercy. But I would also encourage you, if you come from a really difficult family situation, that's your background, I would exhort you and remind you that you can do better. You're not doomed to repeat whatever mistakes your parents may have made. Uh, And so think about it, not just looking back on your own family, but thinking ahead to what you want your own family life to be like. Maybe your parents didn't do the kind of things I described. Maybe your dad wasn't like the kind of man I described last night. Maybe your mom won't be like the kind of woman I described today. Okay, well, you can still strive to be that kind of man or that kind of woman, even if your family life uh, wasn't like that. There are others of you who I'm sure will be able to hear the things I'm saying and say, yes, that's the kind of family I grew up in. We didn't do any of those things, and we did do these things, and it's been wonderful. And I would just say, if that's your situation, don't take that for granted. Don't take that for granted. Instead, give God thanks for that. Realize that's a very special treasure that you've inherited. God's been very good to you in giving you that kind of family life. Another qualification before we begin here, I realized that my talk last night and, and, and this morning as well really will largely focus on marriage. And I realize not everyone is going to be called into marriage. Most of you will marry. Perhaps a few of you will not. Uh, Paul discusses uh, a call to singleness or celibacy, uh, as it's usually called in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There are some Christians who are called to uh, a life apart from marriage, uh, a life of singleness or a life of celibacy. But even for those people who remain unmarried, it's important to understand masculinity and femininity and a great deal of what it means to be masculine or feminine, even for single people, is revealed in looking at marriage and family life. So even if somebody knew that they were not going to be called to marriage, which I don't think that's likely at this point in your life, but even if you felt that way, there's still a great deal you can learn from considering what God teaches men and women and even husbands and wives. Also, anything that has to do with sex or sexuality can easily be associated with shame. Sexual sin is particularly shameful. Uh, Even being sinned against sexually can bring shame. And uh, what I want to tell you here is that if any of these areas that I have discussed or will discuss are a struggle for you, a point of particular pain for you, I would urge you to seek help. You've got counselors and pastors here who love you, who want what is best for you, who are there for you. If you've got a particular struggle, uh, if, if these are particular, uh, you know, if, if there's some particular way in which you're hurting in any of these areas, seek out help. Don't try to go it alone. Seek out help that God has put there, that God has made available to you. And note too, one last qualification here. All sexual sin and all the shame that comes from sexual sin can be dealt with through Christ's death on the cross. I try to make it a point to never talk about issues of sex and sexuality without also reminding people that We're sexual sinners. We're all sexually broken people. And we need God's forgiveness. And God's forgiveness is available to us. No matter what any of us have done, we can all be forgiven. We can all be restored. We can all be made whole in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done or what's been done to you. God offers that restoration to you in Christ. Uh, When you look at what Scripture actually requires of us, in this area of life, really, we are all sexual sinners. No one gets out, uh, you know, no one goes through life without committing sexual sins in one way or another. And so all of us need Christ's forgiveness, and that forgiveness is ours in him, and we should rejoice in that and remind ourselves of that. So keep those things in mind as we begin here. 
Now, last night I said that there are a lot of feminist myths about manhood that distort the truth, uh, but there are also numerous feminist myths about womanhood. And you are not too young to start thinking about some of these things. I realize in a lot of ways I'm shooting over your heads. Um, I'm looking way out ahead in life. And, you know, some of you, you know, if you're 13, 14, 15, a lot of these things are going to seem like they're light years away. But you know what? As you get older, life starts to move faster and faster and faster. And you may be 15 right now, but in the blink of an eye, you'll be 30. And in another blink of an eye, you'll be 45. Life goes by pretty quick. And it's not too early to start thinking about these things and thinking about the kind of life you want to live. What is your vision for your future? Uh, some of the things I'll discuss could be called uh, the politics of womanhood. And uh, that's because a lot of our political and public debates today, a lot of our policy debates uh, in America today, really are about women over different visions of the woman's role in home and in society. And I'll just tell you straight up, uh, I believe that feminism is inseparable from statism. Feminism goes hand in hand with some form of statism, which is basically looking to the state uh, to become a protector and provider because feminists will say we don't need a man for those things. Well, who actually steps in and plays that role? It ends up being the state. Feminism and statism go together. So again, here's our question. If we want to be old-fashioned, cutting-edge Christians, what does it mean in this area? What does it mean to be an old-fashioned, cutting-edge Christian woman? Uh, we need to figure out what God's Word says about womanhood, and then we need to figure out how to apply that in our world, in our current cultural situation. And again, you need to start thinking about these things now because choices you make, even during your teenage years, can deeply impact you for the rest of your life. There are choices you will make during these years of your life that will help determine the trajectory that you are on for the rest of your life. You can alter that trajectory in various ways, uh, but all of our choices have downstream consequences. So you need to be thinking right now long term. Think long-term and not just about what might be fun or fashionable in the moment. Uh, feminists like to throw around certain slogans like girl power or the future is female. Uh, any woman uh, should think through the meaning of those slogans very, very carefully before adopting them as her own. And actually, if you do think through those kinds of slogans, I think you'll find they're really counterproductive to helping women truly Flourish. Those slogans and what they represent do not lead to happiness for women. Those slogans are popular. You'll kind of, I'm not going to talk about them a whole lot explicitly, but you'll see how what I'm saying here touches on them. This is the real problem, though, with feminism. is It claims to serve women's interests, but it actually hurts women. And I don't care how conservative the circles are that you're in, how conservative your church and family are, you're going to encounter feminism. You're going to brush up against it. You're going to be impacted by it in various ways, maybe even influenced by it in certain ways without even realizing it. So you need to be aware of these things. Feminism basically says women should adopt the same life plan as men typically do. Uh, women should adopt the same life path as men typically do. But masculinizing women is no more helpful than feminizing men. And this points really to the contradiction at the heart of feminism. On the one hand, feminism says men are toxic. On the other hand, it says women should be more like them, which doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it. But that's, that's, those are the two sides of feminism. Feminism does not actually promote 
femininity. I mean, that's what's so ironic about it. It's called feminism, but it doesn't promote femininity. In fact, feminism rejects traditional femininity, and it does so so that women can imitate men and become more like men and do the things that men have traditionally done. In other words, feminism has made a certain masculine lifestyle the standard and insisted that women comply, that that women play life according to men's rules, that women do what men do. Uh, The man's life is treated as the idea. One feminist, um, this is back in either the 60s or 70s, so so, um, an earlier generation of feminism, but you can see how this is very much with us today. She said, we have become the women, let me start over. She said, we have become the men we wanted to marry. Okay, so they kind of this ideal of what a man should be like, and then they went out and tried to live that kind of life themselves as a woman. But the problem is, while these women might have become the men they wanted to marry, the problem is no man wanted to marry these women because men are not attracted to female versions of themselves. Men are attracted to femininity just as women are attracted to masculinity. It's the differences between the sexes that drives attraction. And if you weaken those differences, you weaken the attraction between the sexes. You weaken what pulls the sexes together. Feminism seeks to minimize those differences. And I'll tell you, this is why in a feminized society like ours, this is why marriage rates are plummeting. This is why more adults are living alone without any kind of uh, significant other partner. Uh, than ever before in American history. It's why our birth rates are plummeting, now actually below replacement level, which is uh, a very dangerous thing for any society. Uh, This is the effect that feminism is having. Notice how when feminists celebrate female accomplishments, they're virtually always celebrating a woman doing something that men have already done. They're celebrating women doing something that men have already done and perhaps been doing for quite some time. So we hear about the first woman to do X, Y, or Z. You know, the first woman to fly a plane or be an astronaut or maybe become president someday. But why should women celebrate doing things that men have already been doing? Why not celebrate things that are unique and peculiar to women? Why should we get excited about women copying men and doing what men have already done? Why insist that women play by men's rules, that they live like men, that they only celebrate male-type achievements? Why shouldn't women celebrate uniquely feminine accomplishments? But this is the problem with feminists. Feminists can only imagine success for, for women on a man's terms. Success for a woman, according to feminism, is measured in terms of what men do. What success looks like for a man, that's what it should be for a woman. I mean, think about these superhero movies we have out now that uh, you know, have uh, a female superhero as the star. And there's nothing feminine about that. If you were to ask, where does being a wife or being a mother fit in? It's not going to fit in at all. The woman is certainly going to be physically attractive because it's Hollywood after all. But in real life, a man's not going to be attracted to that kind of woman. Men are generally not looking for toughness in that kind of way. They're not looking for a woman who can beat a bunch of people up. That's just not what men are looking for in a wife generally. I mean, I hate to break it to you ladies, but that's not what men typically go for. What happens in these movies is that the female superhero does the exact same thing the male superhero used to do. You know, she's real tough. She can beat up a bunch of people. You know, so you, you've got this really tough character who is going to smash a bunch of people up. 
But the only difference is now you've got a female doing it. And so what's the point? How does that act? Why should we get so excited over that, over women copying men, simply doing what men are already doing? Do we really need women to go out and copy and do exactly what men have already been doing? If men have already been doing it, shouldn't women do something else? Wouldn't that serve society better to do something that men are not doing and perhaps can't do? Today's heroic superwoman is only heroic on masculine terms and in masculine ways. And I would say that's actually deeply unfair to women. It hurts women. Those movies don't celebrate femininity. They don't really celebrate women at all. They're still celebrating masculinity just now in a woman's body, which actually is really, really weird uh, if you think about it. They don't honor women as women. Women in combat, women in fighting roles, it's really a denial of femininity, a denial of a woman's nurturing nature. Ladies, you need to understand, God has actually given you a different life plan than the life plan he gives to men. You have a distinctively feminine life plan that fits with your distinctively feminine body, your distinctively feminine personality, your distinctively feminine nature. It's a distinctively feminine life plan that fits with how God has designed you. Now, a couple other qualifiers there I want to throw in. I certainly believe women should be educated. Um, I mean, I've got a daughter at college right now. I'll have more in the future. I could argue that from Scripture, why it's good for women to be educated. I believe women can work outside the home. My wife has worked outside the home for a number of years. She didn't when our kids were very young, but she does now. I think I can make a case for that from Scripture, that it's okay for women to use their gifts outside of the home, especially if it's serving the home, serving the household. But those things being said, a career will still never play the same role in a woman's life as a man's. Because women are not oriented towards the working world in the same way. We saw this in Genesis 2 last night. God made the man from the earth, and so he's oriented towards the earth, towards working the earth and turning the earth into, uh, transforming the earth into a civilization, a city. But the woman is made from the man. Her origin reveals her destiny. Her origin reveals her nature and her function. So ladies, understand, God's plan for you, God's life plan for you, uses your innate, inborn gifts of nurturing, supporting, and helping to bring love, glory, beauty, and life. That's God's plan for you, to use you, your femininity, in these kinds of ways. Here's, here's a feminist myth. So um, I've already touched on some feminist myths, but here's one we really need to uh, confront head on because you hear this one a lot. Uh, feminists will say women should be able to have it all. And when they say a woman should be able to have it all, they mean she should not have to make hard choices between family life and career. A woman should be able to have an exciting, rewarding career and also a happy family life. The reality is women can't have it all. They can't have it all, at least not in the way that feminists want. Uh, the reality and women need to recognize this sooner rather than later in their own lives, there will always be trade-offs. Feminists say a woman can elevate her career over motherhood without family life suffering. But the reality is it does not work. Now again, I realize sometimes mothers, even with little children, have to work outside the home 
just to make ends meet. I realize there can be a lot of hard situations in a fallen world and perhaps especially in today's world. But here's what young women need to grasp before it's too late. As a woman, you will find your greatest fulfillment and happiness in family life and not in your job. That's the way you're wired. That's the way you are designed. You were not made from the earth to work the earth. You were made from the side of a man to serve in building a family, building a household with him. So here's my question. Why does our culture think it's a good thing for a woman to approach her career in the same way men do? That's what the feminists are saying, and much of our culture has adopted that. Why is it better for a woman to be the CEO of a corporation than to be the CEO of her own home? Why is it that today, if a little girl is asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if she says, I want to be a wife and a mom, she's ridiculed for that or she's rebuked for that. Somebody will try to correct her and say, oh, no, sweetie, you've got to do more than that. You can't let that be your whole life. Our culture does not honor mothers as mothers. It does not value mothers as mothers. It does not value the work and the contributions that mothers make, that frankly no one else can make. Mothers have an absolutely unique role to play that no one can replace. G.K. Testerton asked the question this way. I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, why is it better for a woman to be a few things to a lot of people in a business rather than everything, well, let me, let me, I messed this quote up. Let me start over with it. This is, this is Chesterton, but I want to paraphrase it a little bit. Why is it better for a woman to be a few things to a lot of people in a business context rather than everything to a few people at home, especially since those few people are the ones she loves the most? Why shouldn't she see greater value in giving more of herself to her family than she gives to, say, a corporation? Chester went on, he said, we cannot insist that the first years of infancy are of supreme importance and that mothers are not of supreme importance. Or this is how C.S. Lewis put it, it is surely in reality the most important work in the world. Motherhood is the job for which all others exist. And there's a great deal of truth in that. Feminism will encourage women, sacrifice your children for the sake of career. But in Scripture, in nature, I would say, how God has designed us to live, the sacrifice runs the other way. A woman should be willing to sacrifice career, perhaps some career success, for the sake of her children. Last night I tried to show the men why work is so central to their lives. There's nothing more emasculating for a man than laziness, than not finding his mission in life. That's what it means to be a man. You have a mission. Ladies, I want you to see why motherhood will be so central to most of your lives. Again, carving out exceptions for those God calls to life apart from family in this way. For the vast majority of you, if not all of you, motherhood will be absolutely central to your life. Think about what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5. His instruction here is to young widows, young women who have lost their husbands. What should they do? But really what he says applies to young women more generally. These are just instructions given to young women. I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give no occasion for the enemy to slander. In other words, he's saying to the women, make marriage a priority, children a priority, manage your household. that's, That's what a woman does. She manages her household. And in doing this, you'll create something beautiful that not even our enemies can speak against. A home filled with love is such a glorious thing. It can't be slandered 
even by the church's enemies. In Titus 2, he puts it this way, Young women should love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Same kind of thing. When a woman plays her role building a a household with her husband, loving her husband and her children, uh, submitting to her husband, working at home, staying busy in the household, making the household run smoothly, the word of God can't be reviled when that happens. Nobody can speak against the word of God when it's producing that kind of home, that kind of family life in the world. I put it this way. Uh, Scripture does not say a woman's place is the home. I've already acknowledged that. But it does say her priority is the home. Small children need need a mother's attention as much as possible. When you think what you want your life to look like in the future, make sure that when you think about motherhood, you think about yourself, ladies, investing in those children, especially in their earliest and most formative years. Now, what's interesting in our day is that some politicians will propose policies that uh, would supposedly help women have it all. Uh, Things like paid maternity leave that some countries over in Europe have or government-provided daycare, even for really, really young children. But those policies actually penalize families that want to have the mom at home raising her children. They're not actually pro-family or pro-woman or pro-motherhood policies. They actually would encourage the further outsourcing of motherhood. So this is what I would tell uh, you because it's what I tell the young women in my congregation. And I want you to note the nuances here because I don't want to be uh, more rigid than Scripture is, uh, to be sure. But this is what I would say to you as young women. As you look ahead to your life future, what you want it to look like, make motherhood central to your life. When your children are little, do all you can to be at home with them. Only marry a man who says, I'm going to provide for you in such a way, I'm going to provide for this family in such a way that you'll be able to be at home when our kids are really little, if at all possible. Now, after they get a little bit older, if you want to work outside the home, particularly if you could find a, a flexible job, uh, if that would help your family uh, to do that, that's great. That's no problem. But make sure the children get the best you have to offer when they're little because you don't get to do those years over again. And they are the most crucial foundational years in a child's life. And so, again, if you have to sacrifice career success, if you have to sacrifice some money and some lifestyle perks and luxuries in order to make it work, in order to be with your children this way, ladies, it is worth it. And when you do work outside the home, assuming that you take a job outside the home at some point, make sure the workplace does not steal away your femininity. Workplaces can be very difficult places for women, especially in the, in, in the business world. Uh, they're not very friendly to femininity. And, and there's a reason for that. There are a lot of jobs where, to be successful, a woman has to sacrifice her femininity in order to climb the corporate ladders. Now, a man can be successful without sacrificing his masculinity, generally speaking, because uh, that's just how the workplace is. It's the kind of place the workplace is. But it doesn't work that way for women in a lot of jobs. The things that might make a woman successful in the business world, those same traits might be a disaster in her marriage or in her family life. And that's something else women have to recognize. Uh, There's a woman, I don't know if she's a Christian or not, but her name is Suzanne Venker. Uh, She calls herself the feminist fixer. And she writes about this this issue a lot. Uh, And you might want to look her up and read some of the things she has to say. She says, look, what works in the boardroom doesn't work in the bedroom in married life. Uh, And women need to know that. 
Here's another issue women face uh, when it comes to working uh, and the place of career in their lives. Have any of you ever heard of Taylor Swift? Is that a name you know? Okay, yeah, okay, okay. I just want to make sure. Okay, Taylor Swift recently gave an interview, and uh, she was asked if she had started to think about having children and, you know, sort of settling down since she's turning 30 years old uh, this year. Uh, Now, I mean, you're probably thinking right now, wow, 30 is such a long time, you know, that's that's so far away from me. But I can remember when Taylor Swift was 15, okay? So uh, it's not that long. It just, it all goes by really, really fast. Uh, Taylor Swift was asked this question, you know, are you thinking about having children now that you turn 30 this year? And this is how she responded. She said, I really do not think men are asked that question when they turn 30, so I'm not going to answer. Okay? Now, I mean, she doesn't have to answer the question. She, she can, she's entitled to her privacy. She can keep <coughs> private things private if that's what she wants to do. But the way she responded is very telling. And it's one more way that you see feminism is really out of touch with reality. Feminism sort of lives in this fantasy world where certain biological realities are simply denied. And this is one of them. Why do you think that famous celebrity single men, as they approach 30, are not asked in the same way about having children? Why do you think that? Why don't men get asked that? I mean, Taylor Swift is right. Men don't get asked that question. Why not? And why would a woman get asked that question? Well, a woman has this thing called a biological clock. A woman only has so many years to get pregnant and have a child. For men, it's not the case in the same kind of way. This is just reality. This is just the way the world is. The way Taylor Swift answered that question, saying men don't get asked that, uh, betrays a certain commitment, a certain feminist commitment she's embraced. She is rejecting the notionhood, the notion that becoming a mother, she's rejecting the notion that motherhood is a defining experience for most women, when indeed it most certainly is. And I can tell you, I have known women who put career, success, ahead of getting married, settling down, having a family, and they, I'm just going to work on my career a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, and then I'll settle down. And next thing you know, they've actually gotten too old to get married and have kids. I've read some very sad testimonies from women who figured out too late that there is this thing called a biological clock. They realized too late that they had misplaced their priority, that by focusing on career and putting off marriage and children, they'd actually misplaced their priorities and missed out on what would have really made them happiest. And that brings us to another feminist myth, a related feminist myth. Feminists will say that men and women are equals. Now, that part's not myth. That's true. But then they they will derive from that. They will say men and women are essentially the same. There's a few plumbing differences, but otherwise men and women are identical. This is a myth. This is a denial of reality. We're not the same. It's true to say that men and women have more in common than they have different. We're made in the image of God. We belong to the same species. But we are different from one another in incredibly profound ways. And we need to pay attention. We need to be attentive to the differences between us. Probably some of you have already started to recognize this. You know, you you, you kind of notice somebody of the opposite sex that catches your eye. And maybe you start to talk to them and get to know them a little bit. And they've got you stumped. You can't figure them out. They're so different. And uh, and, and you can't really understand them. And you're cu- curious, what makes this person of the opposite sex tick? What makes them think and act the way they do? I just don't get it. 
That's a common experience when you enter into your teenage years and you really start paying more attention to the opposite sex. But feminists want to deny all of that. What we all know in our bones to be true, they want to say, no, it's not. Actually, there are no deep differences between the sexes. The sexes are or should be made to be socially interchangeable. The goal for many feminists is a genderless society. They will talk about a gender-blind society. That the gender you are should make no more difference to the way you live your life than your eye color or your hair color. You know, those incidental features about you. That, that gender just shouldn't matter in anything that we do. And feminists will say that the differences we observe between men and women are socially constructed. They're the result of conditioning, not creation. They're the product of nurture, not nature. And so, for example, the reason boys and girls turn out different, the reason that boys get interested in trucks and girls in dolls is, well, because we condition them in this way, which actually has been proven false again and again and again. There was a study that was done that tried to give boys dolls and girls trucks, and you know, the boys were ripping the heads off the dolls, and the girls were rocking the trucks to sleep and laying them down in the crib. I mean, it's just... These differences are incorrigible. You can't do anything about them. They're built into the way God made the world. It's insane to try to undo them. It'd be like saying, we're going to repeal the law of gravity. We want to be able to fly, so we're just going to say no more gravity. No more differences between men and women. You can't just decree that from on high. The world is designed a certain way. It's made a certain way. You know, feminists want to say, well, boys and girls turn out differently because we raise them differently. That's why they end up different. No, they're, 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 they're simply different because God made them different. Okay. This is one example, just to, to kind of flesh this out for you a little bit. This is why feminists reject chivalry. This is why feminists don't want a man holding the door open for them, because that suggests there's some deep difference between men and women. Ladies, we don't have the guys here pick up the chairs and put the chairs away because we don't think you can fold a chair. Okay. We actually think you could do that. But because men and women are different, this is a way for men to use their strength to serve you. And I think that's a good thing. That kind of chivalry is a positive. It accentuates and recognizes the differences between men and women. And that's a good thing. This feminist myth that men and women are really the same under the skin is false, and it is dangerously false. If men and women are really the same then men and women end up becoming competitors rather than complements. And this is why we have the so-called gender wars between men and women, the, the tension, the stress between men and women, because men and women now have to compete against one another on the same turf. The reality is men and women are not the same. We're designed to be different, and our differences allow us to serve one another in unique ways. Men can do things for women. Women can't do for themselves, and vice versa. Understand... You are either male or female, and you are male or female in every cell of your body and all the way down to your soul. And I also have to say here, because of the whole transgender mess, the whole transgender movement, uh, whatever your body is, that's what you are. There's no such thing as a feminine soul trapped in a male body. No. You are male or female all the way down in every cell of your body, right down to the depths of your soul. And scripture and science and common sense all confirm these differences between men and women. And this is a fascinating area of study. There are several books I could recommend to you. If you're interested in this, let me know. Uh, but just to give you a few examples of this, men and women have different brain structure. Our brains actually work differently. Men's brains are more compartmentalized 
And so that's why a man can jump from one thing to the next, whereas women's brains are more networked, more interwoven, more interconnected. Women tend to have better people skills. Men tend to have better thing skills, we'll say. Uh, There are personality differences. Men tend to be more aggressive, more open to risk. Uh, Women tend to be far more agreeable and far less confrontational. Women are far more likely to end a sentence with a question mark than men are. Whereas male speech tends to be much more direct and assertive. This is how it is. Where a woman will say, this is how it is, right? I mean, we, we speak, we talk differently. We talk in different uh, amounts. Women speak about 20,000 words a day. Men speak about 7,000 words a day. Not just seven words, 7,000. But it might seem like just seven words sometimes. The fact is, there are persistent and consistent sex differences across cultures and across the centuries. As sociologists and anthropologists have studied societies throughout the world and throughout history, there's never actually been a matriarchal society where women were the rulers and the governors and the heads of their households. Every society that's ever existed has been patriarchal in that sense. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of patriarchy, of course. But every society that's ever existed has been fundamentally patriarchal. Every society that's ever existed, that's ever been studied, that we know anything about, there are these fundamental differences between men and women. They keep showing up in the same way. That's not an accident. That's not a coincidence. That's just the way things are. And if we fight against that, you know, you you can fight nature, but you're going to lose because it's just the way things are. These bodily differences, these psychological differences, these emotional differences, these relational differences. Here's another feminist myth. Marriage is an oppressive institution. Traditional marriage is a cruel and oppressive institution. It's especially bad for women, feminists will say, because it makes women subservient to men. Now, that's the myth. What's the reality? It's true. Paul does say in Ephesians chapter 5 that the man is the head of his wife and that the wife should submit to her husband as unto the Lord. But there's nothing demeaning or dehumanizing about that submission. After all, God the Son submitted to God the Father while remaining equal to him in power and glory. And that's actually the pattern for marriage. It's found in the Trinity, in the economy of redemption. But feminists will still be very suspicious of marriage. I mean, they're not going to be convinced by an argument from the Trinity. But one feminist said, we cannot destroy the inequities between man and woman until we destroy marriage. Uh, Feminists have been very intent on destroying the traditional family and traditional marriage. And even things like same-sex marriage are aspects of the feminist agenda because they're ways of undermining and subverting the institution of marriage. Now, as Christians, we should be heavily invested in defending marriage. We're very interested in defending marriage, and not just for practical reasons, but also for theological reasons. Marriage matters to us very much as Christians because marriage is symbolic of the gospel. It's designed to be a picture of Christ in the church. The reality is marriage done God's way is not oppressive. It's liberating, it's fulfilling for men and for women. It doesn't crush or smother the woman any more than Christ crushes or smothers his church. G.K. Chesterton defined feminism this way. He said, uh, feminism is when thousands of women stood up and said, we will not be dictated to, and then went off to become stenographers. 
Now, see, you don't really think that's funny because you don't even know what a stenographer is, right? Okay? We don't have stenographers anymore. But a stenographer is someone who is dictated to, who takes dictation. This is what Chesterton is saying, really. Feminism is women saying, we will not submit to our husbands, and then they march off and submit to a boss at work. I mean, if submission is demeaning, then the workplace has got to be demeaning, too. Why is it slavery for a woman to submit to her husband at home, but somehow liberating to submit to a boss at work? Can anyone answer that question? No. Because it's not really about submission. It's really about destroying what God created. Submission is not degrading. Again, Christ submitted to his Father while remaining equal to him. It is a glorious thing when a wife gives herself to her husband by submitting to him. Just as it is a glorious thing when a husband gives himself to his wife by sacrificing for her, as Christ sacrificed for the church. And one final myth, one final feminist myth, there is such a thing as casual sex. The sexual script of feminism encourages sexual experimentation for men and women both, and it disconnects sex from marriage. Now, I've often wondered with the feminist script, what is romance supposed to look like? You know, if men and women are completely interchangeable and there's not supposed to be any difference, if you are going to get married, who's supposed to do the asking? If you are going to go out on a date, who's supposed to, who's supposed to ask? Who's, who's supposed to take that initiative? Well, I did see a jewelry commercial in this last year where the woman actually got down on her knee with a ring and proposed to the man. But my guess is most of you ladies don't want to do that. You want to be pursued. You want a man to pursue you, to find you worthy of his love and his affection and his attention. And my guess is you men want to be the pursuers. You want to be the one who takes initiative. And that's a good thing. But here's the thing. You need to understand that feminism has it's completely wrecked the feminist, it's completely wrecked the romantic script for men and women, but it's also completely wrecked the sexual script that God has given to us. Feminism, modern feminism, arose in tandem with the sexual revolution in the 1960s and 70s. They go together. That's why Gloria Steinem, one of the leaders of feminism in the 60s and 70s, said, a feminist is a woman who has sex before marriage and a job afterwards. That's how feminism defined itself. Now, of course, the biggest beneficiaries of this feminist myth that there is such a thing as casual sex has been the abortion industry, which has made millions upon millions off of this myth, and also unscrupulous men who are happy to have sex without commitment, who are happy to use women for their own sexual jollies. That's who's benefited. No, everybody else has been hurt by it. Men and women have been hurt by it. Children have been hurt by it, killed by the millions because of it. Separating sex from marriage has disastrous consequences for men, women, and children. Think about the social consequences of the sexual revolution, separating sex from the covenant of marriage. We've got more kids growing up without a mom and dad in the home. We've got more divorce. We've got more sexually transmitted diseases. We've got more emotional problems because really sex can't be casual. Sex without commitment leads to all kinds of pain and heartbreak, feeling used, feeling ashamed. And so actually you find this free love movement. I mean, that's what they said, free love, right? It's actually cheap love. Uh, Free love actually is very, very costly. There are great personal and social costs. The sexual revolution assumed there was no deeper spiritual or symbolic meaning to the act of sex. You really could have meaningless sex. But that's a lie. 
when people engage in casual sex, they end up feeling ashamed and used, not because society has conditioned them to feel that way, but because they have violated their own nature. They violated their own design. There's no question that God says sex outside of marriage is wrong. It's a sin. But here's what I want you to see. It's not enough to know the rules. You need to know the reasons, too. So let's see if real quickly we can reason our way to that rule. Why does God give us this rule? Is God just trying to kill our fun? No, not at all. God wants what's best for us. He wants us to enjoy sex. He created sex, after all. What is sex for? Well, everyone knows sex is pleasurable, so sex is a lot of fun. But the thing is, you know, eating can be pleasurable, too. But nobody would say pleasure is the whole meaning of eating. No, there are other purposes in eating. We have to nourish ourselves. Well, sex is pleasurable, but there are other purposes to sex besides the pleasure. Here's one way to think about it. I'll do a little biology class here for you. Your body has a number of systems. You've got a nervous system and a circulatory system and a digestive system. And all of your systems are complete on their own in your body except for one. And that's the reproductive system. Men have half of it and women have half of it. And it only makes sense and it only works and fulfills its purpose if a man and a woman come together. That's how it works. You don't need another human to help you digest your food. You don't need another human. That's weird, right, to think about. You don't need another human to make your circulatory system work. It's not like you've got part of the heart and somebody else has got another part of the heart and you have to come together to get a full heartbeat. You know, you've got two chambers, they've, they've got two. No, that's not the way it works. But that, does, that is the case with your reproductive system. God clearly designed a man and a woman, and this is, we could use this argument against homosexuality as well, but God clearly designed a man and a woman to come together as a whole to have children. In other words, sex is for pleasure, yes, but sex is also for procreation. It's for having children. And just as each parent, the mother and the father, the man and the woman, will contribute something to the child's creation, so each parent is ordinarily needed to raise the child as well. What does the child need? The child needs protection, he needs provision, he needs nurture, he needs care. Well, so he's got one parent, the father, who's better suited for provision and protection, and he's got another parent, the mother, who's better suited for nurturing and caring. And so together, the same man and woman who created this child are to raise the child. They're to work together raising the child. It's a partnership, or it should be. And when it is a partnership, then the child's got the best of everything. He's got a model of his own sex in the home. He's got a model of the opposite sex in the home. And then he's got a model of what their relationship with each other should look like. And that's ideal. That's the ideal for the child. Now, if sex has the problem, if sex has the power to create a child, if sex has the power to create a new life, to bring children into the world, you should not have sex until and unless you are ready to have children. I mean, that should be obvious. You should not have sex with anyone or at any time if you are not ready to have a child. Sex can never be casual because it has the power to create new life. And something that has that kind of power can never be casual. But we know this not just in our bodies, we know it in our hearts as well. 
because our hearts and our bodies are designed to work together. If we become one bodily with another person, we ought to be one with them in other ways as well. That kind of physical oneness cannot be isolated from other forms of oneness with this person. Physical oneness is inescapably intertwined with holistic oneness. And this is why sex outside of marriage is really a contradictory act. You're becoming one with someone with whom you are not one. The act itself is a lie. The act says, I'm one with you, but if you're not married to that person, you're not one with them. It's a lie. That's why it's described sometimes in Scripture as defrauding someone to have sex with them outside of marriage. Sex bonds. So we've seen sex is for pleasure, sex is for procreation, sex is also for bonding, it's for companionship, because sex creates a deep connection, a connection that should be permanent. And that permanent relationship that makes sex safe is called a covenant, or we call it marriage, the marriage covenant. That's the only place you will find a safe and secure context for a man and a woman to give themselves to each other in this kind of way to have this kind of vulnerability, this kind of nakedness, not just physical nakedness, but total personal nakedness, total vulnerability and transparency with another person. You can only do that safely in a permanent relationship that we call a covenant, that we call marriage. Because of the kind of thing sex is, it belongs inside that kind of relationship. It is the gift of the self to another. It is the reception of the self from another. It's total self-donation, total self-giving, and it's total self-reception. And it can only really be total. It can only be what it is, what, what, it, what it symbolizes, what it signifies in the context of marriage. It's two becoming one. But sex outside of marriage tries to isolate that physical oneness. It tries to have that physical oneness without all the other kinds of oneness that should go with it and ground it. You should not be physically one until you're also becoming one in every other way. The physical, you know, don't become physically one with someone until you're covenantally one with someone. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're not just disobeying God. You're hurting yourself. You're splitting yourself apart. You're at war with yourself. You're trying to separate the physical from other aspects of who you are. Now, again, there are other, we could reason to that rule to not have sex outside of marriage or before marriage in other kinds of ways. We could say sex is symbolic of Christ in the church. It's symbolic of the gospel. Having sex outside of marriage would suggest that Christ and the church don't have some kind of permanent oneness. So it would be a lie in that kind of way as well. But let me give you one other thought here. This is what I want to wrap up with. I know I've gone on long, too long, but bear with me here because these things are so important for us. When I was growing up, you know, even in church, when they talked about sex, they would try to scare you to not have sex before you got married by talking a lot about sexually transmitted diseases. Don't have sex because you could get an STD. And other reasons were given, but that's the one that would stand out. And you would hear all the statistics of the number of cases of this disease or that disease. And, of course, we didn't know what any of those diseases were, but they sounded really bad. Let me see if I can strengthen that for you a little bit, that, that argument. Saving sex for marriage actually requires you to become a certain kind of person. You will only save sex from marriage if you are developing certain virtues in your life. If you're developing virtues like patience and delayed gratification, self-discipline, self-control, sacrifice, love, love that seeks the best for another person, not just what you want. 
those who remain chaste before marriage end up developing a host of virtues and habits that will serve them well once they are married. Do you see that? You see all this fits together, how it's designed this way? Waiting builds virtue. Those virtues then strengthen your marriage. They help you in marriage. So saying chaste before marriage actually is the best preparation for marriage. Accumulating virtues that enable chastity will help you to be faithful and happy once you are married. Whereas accumulating a bunch of sexual experiences and a bunch of sexual partners is actually going to hurt your future marriage. It's going to make it much more difficult for you to bond with your future spouse. The practice of chastity now is the best preparation for happiness in marriage later. It will serve you well. And you young men know what that means for you. I touched on some of those things last night and uh, others I'm sure you can figure out for yourself. But women, it also helps the young men if you can seek to be not just chaste, but if you can promote chastity in the way you dress, the way you act, the way you speak. You know, men tend towards the sin of lust. If that's men's big problem, women tend towards the sin of immodesty. Proverbs actually describes the, you know, the wrong kind of woman, the kind of woman the young man should avoid. One of the ways she is identified is by how she dresses. She dresses provocatively simply to attract male attention. Men want to look. Women want to be looked at. If you're a man, you've got to fight that tendency to lust. If you're a woman, you've got to fight against that tendency to be lusted after to desire to be lusted after. If lust is a sin, seeking to provoke lust is also a sin. And that's why you ladies need to take care how you dress. Now, you're not to, you know, you could put, you know, a lot of women in a burlap sack and a man would find a way to lust after her, okay? And and I'm not blaming women. I'm not blaming the ladies for any lustful thoughts the men might have. That's not fair to a woman. Uh, I, I don't think that's the right way to approach it. But ladies, you need to dress with dignity and with propriety. You can be beautiful without being seductive. Master that art of dressing beautifully without being seductive. And for all of you, as young men and young women, do not believe the lies of the sexual revolution. Believe God. Believe God's word. Trust that his way is best, that what he wants for you is best. That when he calls you to live this way, he's calling you to live in accord with your design, with the way he's made you. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for giving us your grace and mercy. Father, I ask that you would forgive all of us for ways that we have sinned sexually in our minds and our bodies. Father, I pray that you would uh, cleanse us with the blood of Christ, that we would know that cleansing, that we'd be free of all shame but that we would know that sex is your good gift to us. You created sex for our enjoyment, that we might be fruitful and multiply, that we might enjoy companionship, but all within marriage. I pray that we would use this glorious gift in accord with your law, in accord with your will, in accord with your design. Father, I pray that we would resist the lies of our culture, that you would help us to live faithful, chaste, pure lives, that we might be holy, and how we conduct ourselves, that you would keep us from being stained or spotted with the filth of the world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you all very much. It's been great to be with you this week. Thank you.